0: Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. It's a story of a lovely lady. (laughs) I'm going to stop there. Uh, The Brady Bunch. That's where we're starting today. Dave, you have a lovely singing voice. I'm no R.J. Heyman. I'm no R.J. Heyman. The mellifluous tones of David Zoll. Uh, Who is bringing up three very lovely girls. Isn't that how it goes? (laughs) Um... We're going to talk about the Brady Bunch, but before we do, I want to ask you to uh, to tell me how's it going.
1: It's good. RJ and I were both at a... um installation of a new rector, which is a...
2: Celebration of a new ministry.
1: Whatever the hell it's called. Our friend got made head pastor is basically what happened for those of <laughs> you from the southeast. Rector. Alex Large at Holy Apostles. Woo-hoo. It was awesome last night. Well done, Alex. That's exciting. That
0: well, fun. we don't do dedications, but why don't we dedicate this episode
1: Yeah. Yeah. Emily to the, oh. and Alex
0: Large yes. and uh, their new ministry. Yes. Well, um... Anything else to say for yourselves, guys, RJ?
2: Here's a story of a man named Brady.
0: Yes, there you go. That's what I was looking for the whole Busy time. I just wanted you to see girls of his own. Yeah. This actually, hmm. this first article uh, is seen different than what it seems at first. Um, RJ, you sent this uh, our way. It's from uh, Medium, written by Joel Stein. Uh, and the title is, I toured the Brady Bunch house and it did not go as planned. This is uh, the author talks about having a very nice childhood, but a solitary one where he was a pretty anxious kid who was an only child until he was eight and wanted always to join the California sun Bradys who were never lonely. He writes, the Brady Bunch has been nostalgia my entire life. I only saw it in syndication and it presented an idealized, squeaky clean, lily white post-war past I never knew. As I got older, I consumed the nostalgia of the nostalgia, watching The Brady Brides, A Very Brady Christmas, The Bradys, and two Brady Bunch movies. The Bradys, to me, were always about the past. Then he goes and tours the, the, the new uh, the house, which has kind of been restored, was up for sale, I guess, and HGTV bought it. Um, my tour guide was 48, and like me, he watched The Brady Bunch from his suburban home as a kid. He had seen the finished house the day before and said, I didn't think I would get super emotional. Um, I was not in a communicative family, particularly my father. I thought, wow, well, that, the Brady Bunch, is how a family is supposed to communicate. Seeing the house made something I really connected to as a child seem real. It was an arrival. And he talks about getting really emotional, being on the Brady Bunch house. This is not how I felt, writes Joel Stein. Uh, As his tour guide opened the dark wood doors, everything was perfect. Not just the layout, but every detail. Time hadn't been frozen, it was reversed. The first thing I felt, obviously, was old, due to the fact that I am old. My childhood was longer ago than I thought. Rotary phones, tiny television sets, small bedrooms, Carol Brady's negligees. Secondly, the 1970s were sadder, than I remembered. I stared at the sad clown paintings in the Brady boys' tiny bedroom, at first wondering why boys would want paintings of sad clowns, and then wondering why my parents had a painting of a sad clown. The living room had a piece of art, presumably made by the kids, a framed wad of clay with keys pressed into it, and this was somehow sadder than a clown painting. Why had I spent all this time fetishizing the past? Why had all of us, he's exploring what we would call the dark side of nostalgia, He finishes by asking, is wallowing in nostalgia a way of avoiding the complications of the present? Forcing the Bradys to be children forever, was that a way of us forcing the United States to be a child forever? It's a very interesting article. This subject of nostalgia comes up, I think, a lot. In, um, C.S. Lewis uh, very uh, memorably wrote about it. It's actually some of, I think, his greatest writing is on this subject. Um, but the link of nostalgia, childhood, longing, nostalgia, which I think literally is, uh, the etymology of it is to, to come home, homecoming and in this case, Joel Stein is actually going into the Brady home. I I mean, I grew up watching Brady Bunch reruns, and that was in the 80s, and he's talking about doing that in the 70s. But what about you? I'd love to hear what you guys, what your relationship to Nostalgia, what your relationship to the Brady Bunch is, or just this, simply this article.
2: Well, I'll start since I recommended it. Um, I just thought it was interesting to think about nostalgia or nostalgia, I'm not sure to pronounce it, I think I say nostalgia, because we on the podcast have talked a lot about fixating on the future and the arrival fallacy, You know, thinking to yourself, if only I can get that job, get that house, get into that school, uh, then I will be fulfilled and happy and about what a trap that is, how it's just not true. You know, that when you do actually arrive then by the grace of God, you discover that it, you know... Um, Someone once said, "Feels really great for exactly 15 seconds, (laughs) you know, uh, um, and then you're sort of on to the next thing." And that sort of suffering and and, um, discontentment is sort of a necessary part of human existence. But we haven't talked a lot about the past, about sort of fantasizing and fetish, as he puts it, fetishizing the past. I think that's an equally powerful force. Like I just hear people talk all the time, especially people who are like a little bit older than I am, about How much better things used to be, you know how how uh, everything's sort of going to hell in a handbasket, and if we could only get back to a a previous state of affairs, and um, and I always wonder, like, when was that? You know, exactly. And for who? Exactly. Who who, who was that time good for? Um, And in my own life, I tend not to be terribly nostalgic. And and part of that may be my own upbringing. You know, my my family moved us around a lot. I I lived in like, I went to 10 different schools before college. Um, And yet, even for me, I think sometimes there is this temptation to... Remember the past with rose-colored glasses, or or to um, uh, relitigate my childhood, or or go back or relive it, or. But then I think about, you know, uh, was was I really happy then? What was actually going on then? Um, and it's not... Uh, then some of the nostalgia gets seeped away. And, and I, I do think biblically about it, you know, what does the writer of Ecclesiastes scene say, you know, vanity, vanity, uh, you know, nothing new under the sun in the sense that people have always basically been the same, right? The circumstances change, but people stay the same. Um, And I thought about, when I thought about nostalgia and I read this article, I thought about the Israelites coming out of Egypt, you know, and being nostalgic for their time in Egypt, you know, at least we had something to eat, you know. It's like, sure, we were slaves and it was miserable, but forget that. It was better than this desert thing. Um, But that, and there is a sense in Christianity, especially in the Old Testament, where God does call us to remember, but it's not to remember nostalgically, it's to remember that he was faithful. Um, you know, thus far has God been faithful and in remembering His faithfulness even in the midst of struggle, that gives us hope for the future, that He was faithful and He will be faithful. But, but, but then in doing so, we're called not to fixate on the future necessarily or to dwell or, or romanticize the past, but somehow to live in the present. Um, because uh, we know that God is faithful, and that we don't have to sort of get things sorted out or, or um, live in a fantasy world. You know, we can we can live in the present while still. Also, I think we do think about heaven, right? That, that there is actually a time, and and when C.S. Lewis I think talks about nostalgia, he talks about you know um, these glimpses of this far off country for which we were made, but we only experience momentarily here um, in the present. And so to 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 recognize that someday. All those hopes, aspirations, dreams will be fulfilled and the fears will be put to rest, but it's not, it's not an earthly thing, it's a heavenly thing. Mm. Um, but the best we can do in the moment is to, um, is to live in the moment, and again, uh, not to look forward or backward too much. But I, I thought it was interesting to think about, because again, we've talked a lot about um, the future, but not a lot about the past. And maybe that's a, a symptom of us, we're all relatively young. Right, like I'm the oldest of us. I'm 43, um, sort of, I guess, approaching middle age, maybe. Um, hopefully, younger heart. Actually, but... I, mean, I mean, thank you, Sarah. I appreciate You're that. Welcome. Um, but I'm sure we have some older listeners too, and I wonder how they think about um, it, as the past sort of is longer now than the future. Um, uh, you know, uh, we, we might presume um, how they think about these things with regard to their faith, and anyway, those are my thoughts.
1: RJ the past is longer than the future. Sorry, that was like, whoa, you're right. I mean, depending on how long I live. I have a lot of feelings about nostalgia. It's not something I enjoy generally speaking, um to the point that like I'm I'm unsentimental about things I should probably be sentimental about as a mom. Um I had an experience a few years ago when we were near the neighborhood I grew up in, uh, well, I was born in and lived till I was four in Nashville, Tennessee. And, you know, my parents waited um, damn near a decade to have uh, my sibling. And so that was like the house I was an only child in. And, um, and we pulled up and my mother assures me the neighborhood has gone down, uh, but... <laughs> It it was already a little rough looking, just the house in a way that I found really jarring because those years, those years when I was little, the memories I have for him are so sweet. When I was home the last time, I went for um, a run in my parents' neighborhood, and I almost had to stop because I know too many old stories about Mm. that place. So it was like, I remember, I, you know, there's the one house you go by. They have too many kids. They homeschooled all of them. The, they're, the children aren't literate. Hey, Mississippi. There's another house where the dad screamed so much. They were three houses down from us and we could hear it in the driveway. There's another house that, you know, my best friend's dad died when we were 14. And four years later, almost to the day, the new family that had moved into that house, that father died. Um, and that is, that's five houses down. I mean, that's like one street. Um, if you go around the corner, there's the house that the the really intensely, oh gosh, just backwoods family lived in, and their, their dogs killed <laughs> my cat in the front yard. And the next day, the dad saw my mom out in the neighborhood, and he's like, hey, just want to let you know, we took those dogs out in the woods last night, shot them all in the head. So... <laughs> Like I almost had to stop running because the, it was like these stories. Like we're sl- I just Your see, see the front of novel. like suburban city. Is- <laughs> yeah, I kind of, it's just like I can't breathe. Right, this is like too much to take in. Um, so like nostalgia is really hard for me from mm. that standpoint. Um, but then there there are a few things, and I love this idea of the the sort of the C.S. Lewis vision of heaven because. One thing, and I haven't written about this because I haven't known how to write about it, but I've realized as I have gotten older that the memories I cling to that I'm nostalgic about feel very much like um, they're when I was really little and they're all at my maternal grandmother's house when I would nap because she was very into decorating in kind of like a country chic kind of way. No one is surprised. It's the Mississippi Delta. And her curtains kind of look like Dolly Parton's dresses in the 80s. Like, they were just like, (laughs) this, like really frilly, like cream colored fabric. And and the hum of like a giant window unit, because they still didn't have central air. And that moment right when I would fall asleep as a small child was like the most peaceful and both my grandmothers are dead now and I can tell you that when I need to like be calm and even prayerful those that's actually the memory I go back to Mm. so I just think nostalgia is terribly complicated I think it I, I think I mean I guess it has its virtue certainly in scripture nobody's like nostalgia's great Jesus certainly isn't um but it I don't know I think it have so many thoughts about nostalgia i mean i think we've seen a lot of marriages get ruined frankly because of social media because people have nostalgia about like mm. old boyfriends or girlfriends like i think there's you know and then guess what like you know he's 40 and probably not as cute as your husband a real pain in the ass too i mean it's just like i think nostalgia is not great i
0: don't know It's this is so interesting. It really is a really fertile subject, and I thought, why don't I read uh, what Lewis is one of his great paragraphs about it? He says that our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits, and also the healing of that old ache. He talks about, you know, the, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located or the, the house even would betray us if we actually went back to them, because it wasn't in them only that we found that sort of longing, but through them. Um, and the longing is what, what's important. Um, and it's the same longing that Christians feel towards the, pr- the, the future. When you know um, every tear shall mm. be wiped away, and the sort of new Jerusalem, there's there we the truest indication of that is the longing we often have for the past, or through some some. Fleeting. What we're not long. We're actually not longing for the past. We're longing for some glimpse of joy and hope that we experienced in the past, that is kind of irrecoverable. This hits me very close to home. I'm. People who've seen my office know that it's surrounded by tokens of my childhood. I mean, I've just been getting really into the '86 Mets. That was a big Daryl big Strawberry. Strawberry. Day. Me too. Ray Day. When I was a kid, yeah. Gary Carter, yeah, got all, I went, Lenny Dykstra, when I was now we're Mookie Will them. Them. Okay. Yeah, it's all buried in there. Wally Backman, Sid I mean, it's just, Fernandez, It's good uh, Gooden,
2: Ron Darling. I could pretty much name every player in these yeah. Mets, but. Well, their kids are in
1: Houston th- okay, keep going. People who grew up boys
0: especially I guess who grew up in the tri-state area in the middle of the 80s mm-hmm. those those uh, that team was super were superheroes and I was home. I was with my parents and I went through a bunch of my they had boxes of our old stuff that they wanted us to go through and I found all these baseball cards and my son is now doing little League and I'm just I just am sort of overwhelmed. I collide with this in my past and realizing it was a lot longer ago than I thought it than it than it feels mm-hmm. like inside me. And, uh, what is it, what am I doing by surrounding myself with these objects and wanting to put my Keith Fernandez, you know, uh, baseball cards behind my desk? It's, uh, I think it's, I'm trying to reconnect with some sense of, uh, not the tri-state area, or not the baseball, or not athletics. I'm trying to connect with some sense of joy and transcendence and thrill that I felt as a child, not only with my inner child, but really it is a spiritual longing. It is very much a spiritual longing. And I think like any spiritual longing, it can lead you down the garden path into all sorts of solipsism and self-obsession and escapism, but it can also lead you into, you know... That, where, where true hope is found. So, I mean, I, th- I think that it's, it can be a gateway to hope just as much as a gateway to despair and the feeling that passes irrecoverable. It can also be a gateway to hope. That's what I would say. Nostalgia is such a powerful emotion, and I'm particularly susceptible to it, I think, after growing up in the world uh, at this point. Um, and, and not having a home either, RJ. We moved around yeah. tons. And I don't, I don't have a, a neighborhood where I can go around and, and, and think about those things, Sarah. So well, you
1: are lucky, Um, But the other thing I want to say about nostalgia that's interesting to me when you think about space is that churches don't affect me this way. And maybe that is just me being like, you know, Proverbs 31 lady for a moment, and I'm not telling the truth. But I'm trying to think about having been in a church, and I've been in a lot of churches that I was in as a child, and they never hit me with— they never feel empty in the way that a house can feel empty. When you expect it to give you Uh back nostalgia, there's something about a church. And I I wonder if in those spaces, we're so much more dependent on God who's ever present. Whereas in a house, you know, you're expecting to see your mom when she was 42 years old or whatever. But it's just interesting to me when you think about spaces and nostalgia that churches, I've never been in a, a church that I was in as a child and been like, well, this doesn't feel good anymore.
2: Hmm. Sarah, you being from somewhere, as, you're, as you were talking, it reminded me, have you guys seen Orange County? That ridiculous movie with Colin Hanks and Jack Black and John Lithgow and... No.
1: I've seen The Housewives. It's uh, Yeah, no, 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 no.
2: It, uh, exactly. It's good. I, la- I own it, actually. And there's a lot in there about the main character really wants to be a writer, but he really... Wa- he thinks he has to escape his, where he's from in order to become a writer. And then, sort of, the cathartic moment is where he comes to terms with the fact that all the great writers have a very complicated and troubled relationship with where they're from. Um, and he, he sort of needs mm-hmm. to embrace that. And I think there's something really true to that that part of me having moved around so much, there is a little bit of a sense of, um, well, I'll just, when things get hard, I'll just go somewhere else. I'll just move on. Mm-hmm. But to, to be from somewhere, and maybe even to live there as an adult, and to, to be known in a scary way, and to know things in a scary way, and that there is a, there's a depth there and a wisdom that comes with that that I think doesn't come necessarily if you're more of a, a vagabond. You know? And I think a lot of your wisdom and your mm. humor and who you are, Sarah, come, you're from somewhere. You really are from somewhere in a way that mm. I'm not sure Dave and I are. You know, and I actually I envy that about you, strangely. Although, you know, you probably would say I shouldn't.
1: I mean, did you hear those stories about my neighborhood?
0: <laughs> it's, it, is, it is, guys, it is such a, like, a feckin' uh, you know, territory, the, the past and nostalgia and I, I, I'm i struck by you know, uh, I also went and saw the second part of the movie It this past week and I don't know if, it, it, people make a big deal of how scary it is but the power of that book at least was always the nostalgia that mm-hmm. you confront about childhood and growing older and this kind of sense in which um, you, you're you at a point point, you're 12 and life is full of possibility and and challenge and fear and then you, you come back and you're 27 years later and uh, th- things have happened that are irreversible and you didn't, didn't have as nearly as much control as you thought you did. And uh, yet there's still some sort of love that remains or something. Uh, I'm not sure it translated that well into the big screen in all the final analysis. But I will say that this next uh, subject translates very well into every screen it would appear. I'm talking about Taylor what, what, Swift. Uh, Taylor Swift mm-hmm. whose new record has been taking America uh by or she's sort of back on top after what a lot of people consider after really hitting did. rock
2: bottom. Uh, Taylor
0: Swift.
1: I was is like, back. <laughs> was she out? I'm so not with it. All the, yeah, there was
0: there was I mean, there was nineteen eighty nine and then there was the yeah. one the the one where she looked all gothy and that didn't do so hot and then this new one but anyway be that as it may is we're not actually not here to talk about Taylor's music we're talking about this um, somewhat ridiculous article that appeared in the New York Times called Taylor Swift Philosopher of Forgiveness it's really by uh, a man named Scott Hershewitz He's really talking uh about her philosophy of unforgiveness. You know, Taylor is kind Are of Are
1: they dating? Because when I was reading this and I saw her list of boyfriends, I was like, wait a second, is this just her latest boyfriend and he's trying to like bolster her a little bit? He I wishes. don't know.
0: Taylor is she it's it's hard to live out and let live out loud like that, but she definitely is not known for Ooh. she's known for revenge and you know. <laughs> For kind of like really calling people out, or you know, that's what's yeah. sort of fun about her songs, and uh, it's definitely what's appealing anyway. He writes in an interview on August 25th on CBS Sunday morning, Miss Swift spoke up about our culture's obsession with forgiveness. People go on and on about how you have to forgive and forget to move past something, she said. No, you don't. And then Hershewitz goes on to say, she's right. You don't have to forgive and forget to move on. And sometimes you shouldn't forgive or forget. You should resent. That's literally what, the, what was written here. You should resent. To see why, this is him writing again, imagine that you've been wrong. Let's say Kanye West just busted up your big moment at the MTV Mo- Music Video Awards. That's what happened to Taylor. So what? Why not brush the dirt off your shoulder? Shake it off, right? Um, The reason that wrongdoing sends a demeaning message, uh, the reason is that wrongdoing sends a demeaning message that shouldn't go unchallenged. That message is typically something like, I count, but you don't, Taylor. Mm -hmm. Or, I am up here, up high, I, Kanye, and you are down there below. Or, I can use you for my purposes. When you resent, Hershowitz writes, you protest that message. You insist, if only to yourself, that you do matter. The alternative is to acquiesce to your own mistreatment, to see yourself as less than Mr. West, as someone he can push off stage. And if you see yourself that way, other people might too. Resentment is about self-respect, not just self-protection, uh, even if, though so, he, he does acknowledge in the article that resentment uh, has a way of eating people alive from the inside. But then he says this, he says, but doesn't Christianity teach that people must forgive Not exactly. My friend, Len Niehoff, who's a full-time lawyer and part-time pastor, that should be the dead giveaway, um, recently gave a sermon on forgiveness, which invoked Luke chapter 17, verse 3. In it, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, big if, forgive him. So if Mr. West sincerely apologizes, he rejects the message he sent you when he pushed you off stage. And once he rejects the message, you can release your resentment because your protest is no longer needed. Ms. Swift said she believes in forgiveness for people who quote, have enriched your life and made it better, but she doesn't believe in forgiveness for everyone. If something's toxic and it's only ever really been that, what are you going to do? Just move on. To forgive, in her view, you must release your resentment for the right reasons. You must release your resentment because you see that you can repair your relationship. But what if you can't? He he's then gives us the example of a lost this person is can not let married. Us move forward but without without forgiving or forgetting it's a um i mean I think maybe an intentionally provocative uh, bit of clickbait here, but it's it's interesting in what it brings up about our default understandings of forgiveness and of course the way he he conveniently quotes Jesus about that and not seventy times seven or um, him forgiving people from the cross i mean it's a Talk about proof texting in a in a, a very kind of lazy way, but uh, your initial responses before I weigh in. First of all, <laughs>
1: I totally agree. We should be allowed to resent people for as long as we want, and we should not have to forgive them. I'm 100% on board with this message. Unfortunately, it is very much at odds with the Christian life. <laughs> But in my wildest dreams, <laughs> I do exactly what she's doing. And I don't give a damn who I hurt. Um, you know, I have a list. Uh, literally, it's a file I keep. Um, I'm just kidding. But it's got four or five people on it. Uh, Hit list. Who I just, I'm never going to the a list. I would key your car if I was 14. These are the people on the list. And um, I'm probably not going to get over being mad at them. And also, I know that um, I am called to forgive them, and I am called to move past that pain. And also, I know that Jesus loves me and loves them regardless of how well I can work that out on this earthly plane. And I take a lot of comfort in that. Mm. Um and is a tension you live in because it means that you actually don't get to live in this like righteousness of, I'm right and they hurt me. You are actually living in this tension of, I still don't like that person. I don't want to forgive them, but I know that I'm called into that. Um, and that's, I think that's, on some level, that's the tension of being... Christian, probably the thing that's so scary about reading this is not forgiving and not um, coming to terms with this stuff. It's just so, is so destructive to other people. It's so destructive to yourself. So, this, I'm, I'm kidding initially, but this is pretty upsetting to read. And then the last thing I just want to say, and I promise this is not an episode about Sarah's boyfriends, but
2: <laughs> the episode um, about Sarah's boyfriends? You know, as I. <laughs>
1: I've gotten a small amount of prominence in writing and speaking. I have gestured towards old stories about things that happened. And, um, I guess a year or two ago, I I posted something about, um, waiting for a boy to pick me up for prom. Um, it was my junior year in May, not that I remember what I was wearing or anything. And, um, he showed up really late and then, um, so that was incredibly painful and embarrassing. And then as soon as prom was over with, he promptly dropped me off at our, my house. And I later found out that was because he um, was on probation, um, which I didn't know at the time. But anyway, all this is to say, I put something funny up online um, about that thing that had happened because they're still I'm still pissed at him about that, which is so silly. You know, I'm a married woman now, but I'm still mad about it. And... Um, and he sent me this really long apology.
2: Wow.
1: Yeah, he said I remember that, and I feel so awful about it, and I'm so sorry that I did that. And um, you know, I was a stupid kid, and I felt really shitty. I'm sorry. I don't know if we say that word freely you here, do. but I felt because <laughs> I do because I felt I felt like. The, the the thing that Taylor Swift is demanding and the thing that we all think we have to have, which is these people to apologize to us in the right way for the way that they treated us wrong, when those people do that, you realize actually how powerless they were over the sin that they committed against you. You realize how much they are suffering because of what they did and perhaps how much they're suffering even now because of who they are. And you don't feel any better. Hmm. So... I mean, I I know that that's like a really small sort of, you know, thing that happened. And people always, whenever you talk about this, people are always, they always bring up um, really horrible, horrible sins that we commit against each each other as human beings. They bring up murder. They bring up rape. They bring up all this kind of stuff. Well, are you saying I have to forgive? And I'm like, I'm not talking to you. Okay, I'm talking to the lady in the parking lot who got mad at the, other, you know what I mean? I'm talking, like, that's that, whenever we do that as Christians, whenever we want to bring up these global things, that is our way of not dealing with our own repentance and our own hearts. That is our way of not dealing with the day-to-day struggle of being a redeemed sinner. Amen. Because um, we, we don't want to face that. So we just bring up global things that are on Time Magazine to, to push the whole conversation of forgiveness and repentance completely off to the side
0: as I mean I gosh I wish that weren't true but that is I think couldn't it couldn't be more true I mean but RJ I I don't I want to hear from you before I weigh in
2: well it reminds me a student minister I worked with once said and she was struggling to forgive and she said uh I think I've said this before you know that refusing to forgive is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die um, and that's actually mm-hmm. true. And and what's interesting about your example is I, I feel so often the people we need to forgive, um, they could care less, <laughs> you know, if we have like it's they they've moved on. Like they're not thinking about it. now clearly that right. ex-boyfriend had not, and and um maybe that was a healing
1: Well, you know, I'm good as gold. I mean I'm the one they remember forever, <laughs> RJ. So what can I say?
2: Breaking <laughs> hearts nationwide The one that got away. <laughs> But this, 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 okay. this article reminded me, did I talk about one of the most amazing, thought-provoking, memorable podcasts I've heard recently, episode, it's a few years old, The End of Empathy on Invisibilia, and about how Western civilization really since like, I don't know, mid-20th century, and, and farther than that has really been fixated on empathy, and that empathy is a good idea, and that empathy is the way forward, and empathy is the way to maintain social harmony. It's sort of best for everyone involved. And about how recently that's really come under assault. And there are quite a few voices in our culture that are saying, no, like we're done being empathetic. And in fact, we're going to, we want to hold on to our anger and hold on to our resentment because it motivates us to make the world into a, quote unquote, better place. Um, and it was mm. fascinating. So I encourage you, cool. if you haven't, like I said, invisibilia, the end of empathy, it was terrifying. It was it was it was terrifying, actually. But I see it. I see our culture. Mm-hmm. People are done listening to each other, and they're yeah. done. Um, exactly what you said, Sarah, that they're done being like, well, this was something that that person did that they had very little control over and they were a stupid kid and they made a mistake right. and maybe they're not apologizing in exactly the right way. And maybe they haven't come to terms with it in exactly the way I would want them to. And until they do and the world changes and everything gets better, I am not going to forgive. And it's, hor- yep. it's ugh, terrifying. It's horrifying. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm not a big one to be like, we're moving into a post-Christian world, and, you know, I'm, I, don't, I don't, I don't know. Those kind of conversations are not terribly compelling. And yet... Nostalgia. Well, but, and Nostalgia. yet, you know, if we do actually move into a place where things, like, Christian values like empathy, forgiveness, reconciliation, <laughs> mercy, cease to, cease to infuse our culture, because th- those were not virtues in the pre-Christian world. Like, those are not virtues of the Greco-Roman... Um, I put that on the on the site. Yeah, though, you know, like, yeah, things, like the, things were the bad. Yeah. Things were really, really bad, mm-hmm. you know. Women were treated terribly, and, and you know, children yeah. were left to be exposed, and, and might made right. Like, might really made right. And then Jesus comes along and says, Nuh-uh, you know, those of you who would be first to be last and servant of all, because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to be served, and it changed everything. That's scary. It's scary. Um, and and uh, so, yeah, ugh. Yeah, you don't need to forgive. You're right, but like, welcome to the rest of your miserable life. (laughs) You know, like right. good luck being married yeah. or having children or being in a relationship yeah. with absolutely anyone, including yourself.
0: At the, at the wedding vows, the, the prayers at the wedding, the Book of Common prayers, like, you know, uh, lead us to seek each other's forgiveness and, and yours, yours when, when we hurt each other. Not if, when we hurt the each other. marriage vows, mm-hmm. amazing. And that's the real problem with this understanding of forgiveness that you only, forgiveness only extends to those who've asked for it in the right Way or when it's coming for the right reasons. Now, forgiving it—the command to forgive is the law, and it, you know you can never. You've just got to forgive me. We'll never get anyone to forgive you. But uh, it, that what what does I think open the floodgates of forgiveness is when and what's totally missing in this article is what about when you're on the other side of the person who needs the forgiveness? You know, it, it assumes mm-hmm. that there's it's a it's a uh, Zero sum, I guess, or that yeah. you're always going to be the person who's done unto. And,
1: That's interesting. It does. It's partly, hundred percent.
0: Taylor. One of the reasons why her songs that they kind of play to our self righteous, you know, mm. empowerment thing. Uh-huh. And, you know, and 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 some of them. I mean, they're extremely catchy. I'm a I'm a fan of her music, but I would say that if I want to feel like you know. Like yeah, I'm I'm in I'm the master of my own domain and no one can tell me what to do. I'm so right. I'm pump up some of those anthems and I want to say well what about when you need the forgiveness? What about you are the person that has been toxic in the other person's life? And and that's all of us. I really do think it it is all of us. And and um, it, until part it, it, maybe part of growing up is figuring that out in maybe really painful ways. I think C.J. wrote about it on the website and he says from a from a Christian perspective the question not is what should I do but what if I can't do what I know I should do? And uh, advice like you should resent leaves us empty-handed when we become the, the injuring party, the person who does the injuring, which we all will at some point if that's not already the case. And sort of what the Christian injunction to forgive is um, both the, uh, the, the law, but it is also the, the beauty of the gospel is that God is in the business of forgiving people uh, even those who do not ask for it, uh, ask for it for the right things, or in the right ways, and that his conti- his like absolution is not contingent on us unlocking the door with some the right prayer or the right. Formula, and in fact, it's really only it's contingent. It's non-contingent. It's contingent on Christ alone, and that's a that's a scary thing because it robs us of our entitlement. But it also, I think, creates love and and forgiveness, and those are the only things that allow us to live in the world without just going insane or or harming ourselves. And that's the next uh, the the seamless um, segue,
2: David's all.
0: The next and final article is about the age of American despair. Now, we talk about this quite a bit on here, but it just will continue kind of talking about it as long as it seems to be incredibly important. Ross Duthat in the New York Times wrote about the sudden rise in, you know, deaths of despair, which is uh, deaths of, from suicide, alcohol, and drug abuse that have increased so dramatically since the turn of the millennium. Uh, a new report from the Senate's Joint Economic Committee charts a doubling of the amount of uh, deaths of despair from 22.7 deaths per 100,000 Americans in 2000 to forty five point eight per hundred thousand in 2017 uh, then he sort of goes through the the reasons and he puts it in the mouths of various Democratic uh, presidential candidates he said maybe there there's there's some would say frame it as a mental health and and uh, mental health crisis, and the matters of drug regulation, especially fentanyl and opioids, and that that's really the, what's going on here, more addictive drugs that made more easily available. Some would say it's a result of depths of despair, a result of economic factors of stagnant wages or outsourced jobs, and then uh, others would say that it's a, a result of a spiritual void in America, loss of meaning and, uh, and meta- metaphysics, uh, and a total darkening of the metaphysical horizon. Um, where it seems might maybe everything is playing a factor. But here's Duthat's conclusion. He says, the simultaneity of the different self-destroying trends is a brute fact of American life. And that simultaneity does not feel like just a coincidence, meaning all of the above, the economic, the mental health, the drug, the spiritual does not feel like just a coincidence, especially when you include other indicators, such as collapsing birth rates, and declining marriage rates, and decaying social trust. Uh, They all suggest a society suffering from a meaning deficit, a loss of purpose, optimism, and direction, a gently dehumanizing drift. Then he finishes by saying, despair as a sociological phenomenon is rarely permanent. Some force or forces will supply new forms of meaning eventually. And it it matters not only that this happens, but which forces those will be. Now this takes on a you know added urgency uh, right as we were collecting articles uh, another mega church uh, pastor Jared Wilson who's in near in Nashville I believe uh, there were news that he was a huge mental health advocate and did what sounds like a lot of great work um and he he uh, died by suicide himself leaving a, a wife and two children I believe and in fact 2 days before he had not only buried someone who had um you know, killed themselves, but he had tweeted saying, loving Jesus doesn't always cure suicidal thoughts. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure depression. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure PTSD. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure anxiety, but that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't offer us companionship and comfort. He always does that. It's a lot to take in. It's a very dangerous thing in, 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 in it, to draw any sort of one-to-one causalities, um, and yet to ignore the increase of uh, the, the, you know, that all things being equal, things have have changed in, in this regard. Um, I think, I, again, I feel duty-bound to bring it up as, as much as unpleasant as it is. Now, the two of you, deaths of, de- deaths of despair, um, uh, spiritual crises, loss of meaning, as well as sort of the religious, the Jesus component here, um, where are you, what are you processing?
1: I mean, I, I, you know, I very rarely tell people what they should preach about on Sunday morning. Um, but I do think the the other thing just worth noting is that Jared killed himself and the next day was Suicide Awareness Day. Um, I do think that between, so this week happens to be the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, And um, frankly, what Jared posted on Twitter, and that gives you a way in as a preacher to really talk about um, despair and mental health uh, with your congregation, which I'm just not sure we do enough of, to be honest with you. I think we really like to talk about um, the top four stories on public radio, but I think, which which just heads up, folks, just makes people feel more in despair. Um, But I think we're very hesitant to really face this stuff in our congregation, which is unfortunate because that's precisely in some way what church is for. It is for people to hear the hope of the gospel. I mean, we have walked with friends um, through the journey of them being checked into a psychiatric hospital for three months. Like, and... If you've ever done that, if you've ever been that person, been married to that person, loved a person who's been through that, you're basically showing up with McDonald's and like listening to them talk about how sad they are. And the last thing that you need to do is go and be like, but the hope of Jesus, you know, because that's not going to actually <laughs> help. Um, actually you sitting there and listening, I think is probably the best thing you can do and to pray for them, um, I just think this whole thing, I mean, it's one of those things for me that's incredibly complicated. I mean, I've said so many times I have two, we have two suicide related deaths in my, just in my, frankly, just in my mother's family. I mean, it's, um, and then a lot of addiction on the other side. Uh, I So I hesitate to be like, here's the prescription, right? I mean, it's, there, it's obvious that we know that people are hitting this kind of different level of low. And I think what scares me is that I do think people are trying to look for meaning, but I, hashtag get a little nervous about what that meaning is starting to look like in different people's lives, right? Because um, I do think we make meaning out of, you know, exercise, or, I mean, I'm in a college situation, academic work, or all these different things, and then they can't meet us. They can't meet our suffering. They just can't. They can't meet our suffering the way that the, that that hopefully the church meets our suffering and certainly Jesus meets our suffering. So I don't know. RJ I ain't got nothing really. You got a lot. You got plenty. You got, you got, you got, what do you, you have? have
2: plenty? Well <clears throat> It's funny when you um, when we were Talking earlier this week about what to talk about, and you know, someone, you, I think Sarah, you said we've got to talk about this pastor, and I was like, suicide? Sign us up, you know, mockingbird, we're all suicide all the time, um, which is right. bleak. And I'm sorry, that's kind of an awful thing to say, but but I'm trying to a little levity, a little levity. But, but, but,
1: but, well, it's important. We are one of the only Christian organizations. No, but, that but, but talks I was gonna about, say, it's, I mean, it's like, been present I just, in my life. I, this week, yeah.
2: this week, on Monday, I went to yeah. the celebration of life for a woman who killed herself, and her children and grandchildren were there, and it was beautiful, and she was an amazing woman who lost her battle with mental illness. Tonight, I'm going to hear a a talk even by a a man who's a a pretty prominent public figure whose son committed suicide. Um, This week Mm -hmm. on the Talking Bird podcast, actually, my my talk from... um, the conference in Charlottesville six years ago. You know, a sovereign bullet. Audio quality is not great, mm-hmm. but I've gotten a bunch of emails to me about that because I talk about suicide. So it's been very present. Um, but I think, Sarah, I think at the end there, in my opinion, you really hit the nail on the head. That I, I think you're right. It's not. It's not about finding meaning or optimism. I think it is about mm-hmm. coming to terms as a culture again, because this is one thing I do think we may have actually lost, with the reality that suffering is a completely inescapable part of the human experience and there is nothing, nothing, nothing you can do about it. No amount of work or money or education or, or uh, professional achievement or working out or substances, or whatever you think is going to exempt you from suffering, it's not going to work. And we've tried everything we can. We've pushed death to the side. You know, I'm, I'm sitting uh, next to the medical center, you know. We, we have places we send people to die because we don't want to watch it anymore. Um, and that's something we, as a culture, need to come to terms with. And even, even in that, I really do, like Dave, you know, your dad used to say, sometimes you don't even need to preach the gospel, you just need to resonate with people's pain and their sin, and that's enough mm. gospel just to feel like someone is saying, you are not alone. We as a culture have done so much, you know, we think to ourselves, why do I feel this way when I have so much? When things are going so well, I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't be suffering, I shouldn't have these thoughts. And that just drives you deeper Mm -hmm. and deeper and deeper in despair, and no one wants to talk about it. And you're right, Sarah, Mm -hmm. they certainly don't want to talk about it from the pulpit, Mm -hmm. because people want to come to church and they want to leave Mm -hmm. feeling uplifted. But it's, it's superficial. Or no, challenge. But, but it's superficial. That's what we like. It's superficial. It doesn't
1: No, it is. But I mean that's I, I would I hope it, I don't I'm not sure that most pulpits that's in our denomination, to be honest with you, are hoping for uplift. I think that they always uh, want to challenge people. And I'm well, like, oh right, well, my well, God, well, then, everyone is walked me, in on me the brink of like, Let me challenge horror. you to confront
2: the reality of your life. <laughs> and the reality of the exi- inescapable yes. reality of our existence. And then maybe in the yes. midst of that, Jesus has a word to speak, which is you are not alone. I love you, I forgive you, I'm with you and this is not forever. This is not for, you know and and I mean yeah and
0: he, that's not RJ's word to you. That's that's Jesus' word. I mean word. that's that yes. when we when we read the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, the sheep doesn't it, it says, you know, there's all sinners who repent, there's more joy in heaven, but in the actual parable that that sheep is headed off a cliff that coin is hasn't can't move it's an inanimate object the the, the, the hope is in God the hope is in mm-hmm. Jesus to who grabs the lamb puts it over its shoulders and walks back and maybe the it is a, you know sh- sheep are long since you know we think that's suicidal now that's not my conviction all the time about what how God acts in the world but it seems to be the picture of what Jesus is saying and I'm actually he's more trustworthy than I I am. So that's where I'm going to hang my hat is that beautiful picture of a God who goes after the lost, the least, the lonely, the last, which is everyone. Again, the wonderful thing about that parable is that uh, it's a rhetorical device because you read it and everyone's like, uh, you know, am I the only one? I I, I, there are no 99. We're all mm-hmm. the lost sheep, and that means that we're right. all
2: the but target But we think there God's... are. We think they're the other 99. That's what makes we, so well, we feel so alone. We feel so alone. I
1: feel like they're all blonde. <laughs> Don't you feel like they're all blonde? Every time I see them, I'm like it's just a bunch of blonde sheep. Hey,
0: well, I have, I have blonde children, and they're just... They're, let me tell you how lost a little... <laughs> they're, they're, they're pushing the limits as we speak. Uh,
1: <laughs> that's amazing. I So... One thing I just want to say that I wish people had stopped doing around suicide and even frankly, just around mental illness is that we all say, like when you hear that someone took their own life, um, we all hear people say, well, first of all, everyone wants to know how they did it. Right. Like, how did they do it? So like, I can actually not end up with my garage with stuff, up stuff, you know, in the tailpipe or whatever, or they want to know why they did it. Um, and I always find that that's such uh, I mean, on some level, I think people ask those things because they care. But I think on another level, it's because we're just like, we want to disassociate ourselves and our problems as much as possible with whatever happened to that person. So it for sure doesn't like happen contagious. to us. And- yeah. Yes. And it's just like, no, no. Like, this is like, they woke up and their brain chemistry was completely off. Like, that's what happened. Or they woke up and they were so sad, they felt like they could not go on for another five minutes. And like, they did nothing. They did nothing. This
0: is why the biblical image of being possessed. Yeah. is so powerful yeah. it's in actual possession yeah. and that's i mean i someone who's in unceasing s- emotional pain uh, is just wants it to end, and they also want to spare their loved ones it. I mean, that's isn't the, when oh, we talked yes. about that recently. I mean, it, a lot of times people and I'm sh- I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was in Jared Wilson's mind that he was sparing those who had to deal with him. That in fact, it was seen as a selfless act rather than a selfish one. And this is where we get into sort of compassion, and we get into um, but. And I also I, I think that. When people want to read through the passages of exorcisms in the New Testament, you just want to say, "No, I want to." Let's focus in on those because how many of us are beset by things that wish us harm that we don't seem to be able to get a handle on and don't can't even really a make strong sense man. of. And we make the language that we, we use might have changed or our cultural you know comfortability with it. But how is that cult- cultural you know framework serving us? Not 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 super well when it comes to stuff like this. Um, I mean,
1: meanwhile, there's just like a whole herd of 99 Taylor Swift's over there just going, resentment's <laughs> great you know, <laughs> like, just well, to name it like it's, this stuff is so connected
2: um, There's a great book well, I shouldn't say I haven't read it, but I've given it to people that I know are struggling with mental illness and they've said that it was one of the best books they ever read on the topic, it's called Grace for the Afflicted, it's written by a, uh, Dr. Matt Stanford, he's an amazing Christian mm-hmm. man and a neuroscience PhD and it's called a clinical and biblical perspective. And he talks about mental illness, but he also talks about the Bible and about how there are many biblical figures that you read what they wrote or you see how they lived and they had sort of diagnosable mental illness, that this is not a new thing. And for anyone who's read the Psalms, you know, like David had his ups and downs, let's say among other people. So if you're, if you're in that place, grace for the afflicted Dr. Matt Stanford um, might be a good a good read if you're trying to integrate your experience with your faith.
0: So what you guys are saying is we don't need nor uh, to turn uh, church into Brady Bunch. I, mean, I think that's the <laughs> full circle. You're
2: on fire today, David Zoll.
0: There's no. I honestly, there is no neat way to wrap this one up. This is again, I'm something we'll return to over and over again. And but yeah. this is we've, I think, exhausted our time limit for today. But let me just say in closing, though, you know, Lord have mercy. This is uh, Christ have mercy. Our, the, the, the hope of the hopeless. That's that's
1: Lord have mercy.
0: And uh, for for and for that. That uh, family as well, as well as all all yeah. people. So, uh, you guys, thanks for thanks for being here today, and uh, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks.
2: Love you guys.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time.